time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions, because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Greetings, my friends. How are you on this Sunday, May 28th, Memorial Day weekend? Uh, If you're listening live here on the Jersey Shore on 92.7, WOBM or whatever day or time you're listening to the podcast of this program at the financial uh, physician.com. I am, uh, this is the second Sunday that I am in Europe on vacation and uh, we have a pre-recorded show for you today. Uh, the first, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes will be fresh stuff that I recorded uh, last week. Uh, and then uh, the second part of the program will be uh, segments, the best of loose segments, segments that I think that are um, important, that have a lot of information that I think uh, we want to play again, because I think that it's something you should uh, hear again. So if you um, uh, listen to the first half hour and you don't want to listen to repeats, that's fine. Uh, but I, I picked some really good segments uh, from past shows that we're going to air uh, in um, the second half of the program. Time to make a huge announcement. Uh, I was going to hold off on this until I was back uh, live next week, June 3rd, uh, but I want to get it out there. Uh, after 23 years on WOBM, uh, most of those years on the AM side uh, and uh, the last year or so here on the FM side, uh, after a lot of consideration, I made the decision uh, to stop broadcasting on WOBM and just keep the show on the podcast. Now, a lot went into my decision to do that and i'm not going to get into all the details about it but uh it costs a lot of money to produce a terrestrial radio program uh you got to buy the time you got to pay for the board operator and uh a lot goes into it and in this day and age podcast is really the all the rage it's the future of broadcasting uh and uh i've decided that the the podcast has grown so much and and i assume that that my listeners here who listen live on the radio will move over to the podcast uh and that's where we're gonna go uh i'm very excited about it i think there's a lot of things we could do on the podcast that we can't do on terrestrial radio uh as long-term listeners of this program know uh i'm a bit controversial uh i talk about subjects that uh may be uh, uncomfortable talking about uh, that other people may find uncomfortable talking about on the public airwaves. Uh, on podcasts, I don't have that limitation. I could use salty language. I could talk about subjects uh, without fear of being censored or uh, fear of getting hate email from somebody who stumbled upon uh, the radio station. Uh, if you recall last week, I got a call from a crazy liberal trying to take me on. So I, I want to move towards uh, the podcast where I'll have a community of people uh, that want to actually make the effort to listen to the program. And I assume, like I said, that the podcast is really going to grow quite a bit. And the podcast gives me a lot of flexibility. So we're going to we're not starting this tomorrow or next week. Uh, my last 
show here on WOBM will be June 25th. So uh, I guess seven days from that would be, what, uh, July uh, 2nd, I believe, uh, July 4th weekend. Uh, we will upload our first podcast, uh, and there'll be no uh, radio show here on WOBM between 7 and uh, and 9 a.m. Now, I alluded to this the last few weeks. You, you heard me talking about the podcast and how we may wind up there. And uh, I hadn't made the decision yet, but I was pretty close to making it. And uh, over the last week, I'd, I, I've made the decision. I've notified the station. Uh, and, and the station's been great to me. I, I have to say, uh, Town Square Media, which is owned WOBM uh, for, I guess, the last 10 or 12 years, and before that, Millennium Broadcasting, um, they were great to me. Uh, over that time frame, I only once really received a phone call from the station saying, Lou, you know, maybe you shouldn't have said something. And, and that was quite recently. Uh, so I, I, I thank uh, WOBM for giving me the opportunity to be here for 23 years. And I know for many of you, this show has been a tradition. That you're so used to listening to the show Sunday morning. It's been part of your routine. It's been part of my routine. I mean, for 23 years, uh, I've been coming in here on Sunday mornings uh, and giving you this program, broadcasting this program. And I'm always excited to come in and do it. Uh, But now I'll have a lot more flexibility to record the show during the week uh, or on Saturday and then upload it. And now I plan on having the podcast uploaded to the website, the podcast website, uh, the same time we always have been doing it, which is nine o'clock in the morning on Sunday. So it shouldn't affect anybody, especially if you're a podcast listener, this means nothing to you. But if you are uh, a regular radio listener on WOBM, uh, you're going to have to, uh, go to the podcast to listen to the program. And why not? The podcast, like I said, you can listen to it at your leisure. You don't have to listen to it at 7 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can listen to parts of it. Um, at a time, you don't have to listen to the entire show at once. Uh, we're not going to have all the commercials that we have uh, on a radio show. Uh, it doesn't have to be exactly two hours long. I can go longer or I can go shorter. You know, how many times do I tell you that I don't get to all the things that I want to talk about on this program because we can't get it all in in two hours? Well, uh, I don't have to. I'm not limited to two hours. Also, I can go less than two hours. And I, I plan on giving you not only the Sunday program that will be uploaded 9 a.m. Eastern time on Sunday mornings. I plan on giving you midweek updates. Uh, we're going to um, upload video to Rumble, my Rumble station. It will also be on the Financial Physician website. Uh, we'll do a, a, a video podcast. So we have lots of exciting plans ahead for the podcast uh, and we still have, I guess, four more weeks that we'll be doing Sunday live here on 92.7 WOBM. Uh, now, some of you have told me, because some of my clients I've seen, I've mentioned this to, uh, and they said, Lou, I don't, I don't have a computer. Uh, I don't have a smartphone. I don't know how to do this stuff. Well, you're going to have to learn. Uh, buy yourself a smartphone, an iPhone, or an Android Learn how to use the internet on it uh, and just go to thefinancialphysician.com. That's the website. Just go there, save it on your, um, in, in your favorites, and then just hit the radio icon and listen to the show. It's not difficult to do. And if you're older and you're, you're not computer literate, uh, have somebody in your family set you up. 
And now, now it's time to become computer literate. It's 2023. And you'll find, uh, and, and I, I know my own mother was this way, uh, didn't know anything about computers, whatever. But once she learned how to uh, text people and, and go on Facebook and stuff, she learned a lot. And she was able to be more engaged. And uh, you get so much information on the Internet. Uh, it's time to do it. If you're uh, just too old and, and you can't do it, well, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I guess you won't be listening to our program after uh, June 25th. But uh, uh, And I'm sorry about that, but it's just the way it has to be. So I'm excited about it. I'm melancholy, too. I, I'm feeling it both ways. You know, when you do something uh, every Sunday for 23 weeks, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's certainly my routine. It's what most of my Sundays in my life has been. And, uh, and uh, I have a bittersweet feelings about it. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful run. And I've loved coming in Sundays. And I, I thank all the listeners who have made the show successful and the sweet things you people have to say about the show. And uh, really, really kept me going during uh, these days uh, of doing the show. And it's still going to continue. Like I said, I'm going to do the podcast. I am not stopping this radio show. It's just going to be in a different form. And uh, given the fact that we're going to be able to do just more than Sundays, uh, you're going to want to go to thefinancialphysician.com. Now, when you go there, a pop-up comes up offering offering my uh, book free of charge. And you can download it, the PDF file. It's really nice. It's really good. Uh, and we ask you for your email to do that. Well, if you give, give us your email address, you'll always be notified by email when I have a new podcast going up, because it's not just going to be Sundays. It could just, if some news breaks on a Tuesday, uh, I may have Tuesday night. I may have a half hour podcast or video podcast that I'm going to put up. And for you to know about it, you're going to have to get emailed. So we're not going to market to you. We're not going to share it with anybody else. But, you know, hundreds and hundreds of you are on the email list and you get notified uh, whenever our social media is updated. And you certainly want to um, sign up for that. So a great run here. We're going to still have four more weeks with you. So we're going to enjoy that as much as we can. Uh, I love coming into the studio. Uh, I, I, you know, it's just been so gratifying to be able to come in here and be with you each and every Sunday. But we're not going away. We're still going to upload on Sundays. We're just going to upload to thefinancialphysician.com. And uh, we're going to... Uh, do our podcast and uh, I'm going to expand. I'm going to be doing a lot of things. I'm going to be touching some subjects that may have been, uh, I don't want to say forbidden on this station, but I know better uh, uh, not to talk about. And uh, you may even hear uh, a few choice words from me on certain subjects that I can't share with you here on the radio. So uh, again, exciting time. It's the end of uh, one phase of the financial position. Uh, and the beginning of another. So hopefully you will, will join us each week for the podcast at thefinancialphysician.com. All right, now that we have that behind us, now I want to start the show uh, talking about a subject that I haven't talked a whole lot about on this program. Uh, yeah, we've been on 23 years. I'm sure I brought this up, especially when the book came out. Uh, we talk about markets. We talk about how to accumulate wealth. You know, we talk about investing. We talk about estate planning, how to bequeath our wealth to our, our kids and our next generation. But what I don't really talk a lot about is, is, is a way of using wealth in a great way. And that's generosity. 
Now, I have a chapter in the book, uh, one of the last chapters in the book, you know, one of the big problems that Americans have is lack of generosity. Now, there's a lot of many generous people out there, don't get me wrong, but many people are not generous, and they don't really know what they're missing. I mean, some people just focus on themselves, and they don't think about anyone else. Everything they do is for their own benefit, to give only when they want to receive, not because they wish to help, because there is some kind of uh, ulterior motive that they have. Maybe they'll get something back. And when they do give, they give half-heartedly and give the least they possibly can. And, uh, and that's a shame because people who are generous are more happy than people who aren't. I mean, we humans are communal people. Throughout our history, we've lived together, we've worked together, we've helped each other. And I think we've kind of got away from that. But uh, giving, sharing, and helping others, you know, are qualities that we actually prize. I mean, it's, it's, it's important. Now, tithing, which means giving one-tenth of your income to the church, has biblical roots. In, in the Bible, there's so many, so many uh, instances where they talk about generosity. Who was generous to somebody else? Who was generous to the church? Who was generous to the poor? Right? And that, that's tithing. And I, and I know people who've tithed before, you know, who do now, clients of mine. And I see how much they give in charity. And I'm like, how do you give so much money to your church? And they say, well, you know, the Bible says you should give 10% to your church. And, and you know what? Uh, the more I give, the more I seem to get back. You know, I really don't seem to be. It's not like I'm giving money I don't have. I, I continue to have money coming to my life. And I truly believe that God blesses you for being a generous person. And uh, unfortunately, too many people just don't care about others. They're too self-absorbed. You know, all they think about is what's best for them. And that's a shame. That, that, that's, a, that's, I feel bad for those kind of people. And, you know, we live in a very competitive, ruthless society. We've got tons of pressures. And now a lot of people have financial pressures, obviously, due to inflation and everything else. And, and it's kind of hard to give. But as I go forward here, you'll see generosity doesn't necessarily mean money. And in my book, uh, you know, The Financial Physician, I always use medical and financial analogies together. And, and I say uh, generosity is the equivalent of giving blood to somebody in need. It's like a, a cash transfusion to someone who's in financial critical condition. And it makes both of us feel great. I mean, obviously, you feel great when somebody helps you out when you're down and out. But boy, I tell you, it really feels great being able to be able to help somebody and giving and giving generously illustrates your abundance. Um, and, and, and why not? I mean, you know, obviously if you're poor and you don't have anything to give, you, you can't give, but you know, people who are generous usually have abundance. And when you're fortunate enough to receive God's abundance, you have an obligation to help other people. It's your duty because helping and sharing uh, is the glue that holds our society together. And when you help somebody, everyone wins. It brings people together. It builds strong bonds. It promotes understanding and caring. 
and everybody gets richer and more blessed. And, you know, money, it's like blood, to get back to medical analogies again. Money is intended to circulate, not to be hoarded. And, like, if you, you open up your arms and put your hands out as if you're giving money, you open it up for it to come back into you. You hold it tight against your chest, you can't bring any more money in because your hands are protecting what you have. So if money doesn't circulate, it can't help you, it can't help others, it just sits there doing no good. And I noticed when, when I'm generous, shortly thereafter, more money comes back to me than I gave away. It's kind of interesting how the universe works like that. And I believe that our wealth and our riches are spiritual gifts that we don't own. We're just the custodians of that gift. Listen, we come into our lives with nothing and we leave with nothing. And if in between we could come into money and wealth and we could circulate it and help others and do good, when we walk out of this life or we carried out of this life, whatever it is, uh, with nothing. Uh, at least we know the in-between being born and dying and the money that was a spiritual gift we were able to give to others. Uh, that's a good thing. And when our lives are complete, the greatest legacy that we leave is, is, is not our fame or fortune. Uh, it's the values that we've lived and the examples that we've set for people. We're not going to be remembered for how much we had. We're going to be remembered for the person that we were and the things that we did. And at the top of that list comes giving, sharing, helping. And again, that's not necessarily monetary. Generosity is not just money. First of all, it's not going to, if you're generous, it's not going to hurt your financial health because we don't give away what we don't have. We give from our abundance. And I, I find that, that people who are generous uh, are happy people. And those who are stingy are unhappy. Because they're always constantly trying to protect what they have. And that makes them suspicious or protective and afraid. And in my, um, my uh, chapter on money psychology, I talk about uh, there's an attitude of abundance or an attitude of lack. Uh, and we have one or the other. Think about who you are. Do you feel that you'll always have enough and you, you have an abundant life and that you're not worried about running out? Or do you have an attitude of lack where you feel like you have no, you don't have enough and you're scared that you're, you're always going to be struggling? Now, you would think that an attitude of abundance would come from people who have a lot of money. And that an attitude of lack would be for people who don't have any money. That's absolutely not true. I know many, many people who have a lot of money and have an attitude of lack. And I know people who have little money and have an attitude of abundance. The first person to pick up the check and blah, 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 they don't care. And I know people with millions of dollars that won't part with a dime of it. Right? So your, your social your psychology has something to do with it. But um, generosity, again, is about giving. It's doing more than we have to do, more than what's expected of you. 
And again, it involves more than giving money. It's going above and beyond, going the extra mile for somebody. Uh, It's giving of yourself by making a real effort. It's sacrificing and giving your time, attention, and concern to somebody in need of that. And it's helping, it's sharing, and it's bailing out other people who have problems. And many people, their generosity is their time. I mean, what's more precious to you? Is it money or your time? Well, we only have a finite number of seconds in our life. So time is a very precious commodity. So give it up your time. Sometimes that means, you know, who volunteers at the hospital? Who's a volunteer tutor, you know, for some kids? Who volunteers to be um, the baseball coach and takes time out of their day? They run home from work and go there and they're the coach for little kids and mentor. And there's so many examples of this. And uh, you could receive, you know, you get a real satisfaction from being able to give meaningful help to somebody. And again, you can't take your money with you. I mean, what have you achieved if you die with a million dollars or two million dollars in a bank, right? And meanwhile, you had an opportunity to help people, but you didn't do it. So here's some of my, my rules for generosity. Take the initiative. Make the first move. Look for opportunities to give. And when you see them, give without being asked. You know how hard it is for somebody to ask you for help? If any of us ever had to do that, you know what it's like. I mean, first of all, you're ashamed you're in that situation to begin with that you need help from somebody, a family member or whatever it is, a friend. Um, you know, make the first move. Say, I see you're hurting right here. Maybe I could help. What could I do? Or, uh, you know, here's, a, here, here's some money. You know, I know you're struggling right now. Maybe this will help your Christmas. And watch a smile come across somebody's face. Um, so make the first move. Give without waiting to be asked. Um, give without strings. You know, so many of us will give some money to somebody, but there's all kinds of strings attached, right? Don't expect somebody that you're giving money to to jump through hoops in order to receive your gifts. I mean, generosity means given unconditionally. If you expect something in return, it's not, it's not no longer generous. It's something else. Don't get bent out of shape when the recipient doesn't jump through hoops in order to receive your gifts, uh, to acknowledge your gift, I should say. Uh, he doesn't or her, she doesn't express his or her thanks or, or doesn't use your gift how you intended it to be used. When you give, you have to let go of all your ties to the gift. And make no exceptions as to how the recipient should act. Now, look, we don't want to give somebody money to somebody and they're going to go out and buy drugs with it. You know, we're going to be upset about that, obviously. And, and there's some exceptions to this rule. Uh, but when you give somebody money and say, well, you've got to spend it on this, 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 and this. Uh, now you're putting strings on it uh, and you're diminishing your generosity. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you can't write somebody a check for their mortgage, all right? And uh, that's not putting strings on it, really. You're just paying their mortgage, and that's what you want it. But if you give them the money and say, hey, pay your mortgage with this, and they wind up paying uh, their car payment, electric bill, and food for their kids, and you say, well, I gave you this for the mortgage, now you've put strings attached. Don't expect anything in return. You're giving because you want to help not to receive something in return. 
If you don't expect to receive anything back, uh, you won't be disappointed when you don't get anything back, right? Uh, and don't keep, don't keep score. Giving should not be a, a contest. Uh, it should not be a quid pro quo. Now, sure, if uh, if I give to you now because you're down and out, and in the future I'm down and out, uh, and you're you're doing okay, well, I think it would be right to, if not expect, but uh, the person who previously was helped should help the other person in reciprocity. I would say. Um, uh, just be careful how you do generosity. Uh, and, and the thing, too, is that you have to understand that a person who's given money or a person who borrows money, um, uh, there's emotional issues with that. You know, you can go help somebody and they could resent you for helping them. I've experienced that in the past. You know, you have a friend, uh, you know, that's down and out and you, you, you write him a check to help him out. And now they don't call you. You don't hear from them. You don't see them. And why would that be? It'd be because they're kind of ashamed that they haven't paid you back based on the terms that, you know, you had stated. Uh, or they may they may resent you because they owe you. You know, it's nice when you write them the check and help them out. They're happy. Uh, but they may resent you later on. And that's okay. That's human nature, and, you know, you have to accept that. And uh, and that's just the way it is. Uh, Mark Victor Hansen, who is the um, author of uh, the Soup for the Soul series of books, uh, I know him personally. I've spent a lot of time with him uh, over the years, and he actually wrote the foreword to my book, The Financial Physician. Great guy. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Miracle of Tithing, uh, and it's a must-read for anybody who wants to know about being generous and what tithing is and its life-changing effects. And in his introduction, Mark states that tithing is the best-kept prosperity secret in existence. It's an old secret that works but has been virtually forgotten. And he goes on to say, tithing is systematic generosity and will greatly enrich both of you and all those benefiting from your giving. And uh, truly amazing book to read. And the theory simply is, as I said earlier, the more you give, the more it comes back to you. And, and, and the universe, God, spirit, whatever you want to call it, uh, is pleased when the abundance that he's given us is shared. And I, I think we have an obligation if we are abundant and uh, we have significant blessings uh, that we share those blessings. And I tell you, it, it has a physical effect on me. Uh, it makes me feel good. It affects my mental health. It affects my physical health. Uh, and it makes me smile. Now, we all don't want people banging down our doors saying, help me, help me, help me. You know, it's not something that we could do for everybody. And we got to pick and choose how we do it. But uh, one of the great advantages of being financially healthy, and that gives you the ability to make others financially healthy as well. So decide who you want to help. You could choose individuals, organizations, your church, starving kids in need. You know, it's all up to you who you give. Uh, but generosity in your life is, is a real important thing. And I think uh, many of us have gotten away from that. And uh, try it sometime. I think you'll be really pleased about how you feel. 
And I've always said, you know, uh, you know, people have said to me in the past, and I've helped people out, uh, many people in in the past and and the present. And people say, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're very generous, very nice of you to help them. And I say, you know what? I'd rather be the person asked than the person asking. And think about that. You don't ask somebody who's broke to help you financially, right? The reason they're asking you is because you could afford to do so. And you've been blessed in that matter. So uh, it's always better to be the one who's giving to somebody else than the one that's in need of gifts. Now, I'm recording this program on May 17th because uh, I'm still away on vacation. Uh, It's airing on May 28th, uh, 11 days later. So 11 days in our current life is like forever. Uh, so I don't know when I'm recording this what kind of news would be out there, what's happening in the financial markets, did more banks fail, you know, what have you. So you have to, to keep that in mind that I don't know that. Uh, but obviously we've had a the worst year in bank failures in history. And it's only May uh, when we take into account the billions of dollars in assets, uh, deposits that had to be made good on in banks that failed. Uh, we're looking at more than the the, the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And we still have uh, seven months left in a year, and many, many more banks are going to fail uh, as the year progresses. And, of course, either my listeners who listens to this program, and, you know, look, I talk about this stuff on a program, but you you know from just watching the news and what's going on out there, how all these banks have been in trouble. And, uh, and, and I get a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, a lot of phone calls. I spend a good portion of my day answering people either through email uh, or through phone calls who are asking me questions about financial institutions and what they should do. I'm even helping people to open up money market accounts at Fidelity and Vanguard and so forth and so on. So, uh, you know, people are really, really concerned. And, and I've never seen it in my 40-year career, people so concerned about their money. Uh, and I, I had a call last week from somebody who says, Lou, I went to the bank and said, I want a money market fund. And they directed me to a money market account. And it's not the same thing. They asked me if it's the same thing. I said, it's absolutely not the same thing. A money market account is just a glorified savings account. It is not a money market mutual fund. It is a bank account. It's subject to FDIC rules. It's subject to the solvency of the bank itself. Uh, so don't let a banker go in there and talk to you and say, oh yeah, we have a money market account here. Uh, you want a money market mutual fund and you want a money market mutual fund that only has treasuries. So it's, it'll say treasury only money market or it'll say government money market. Now banks won't give it to you, you know, in their banking arm, if they have a brokerage arm and they have that nice little man in the corner office, uh, well then they may be able to provide you with a money market fund. They really won't want to because they don't make any money on it. Uh, so they'll probably try to talk you into an annuity or something else. So be aware of that. Uh, but if you can't get satisfaction uh, from your bank, uh, then you're going to have to take the money out of the bank and move it towards uh, to a money market fund through either a mutual fund company or a brokerage firm. Every brokerage firm has money market funds. Every mutual fund company has money market fund. All right. And the money market fund is just a money market government money market, a treasury money market. All it has is short-term treasury bills. And right now, the interest rate's over 4.5%. Pretty good. And you're in guaranteed money. Now, the thing to keep in mind, though, with uh, money market funds is the interest rate varies. 
and it varies based on um, uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing, the federal funds rate. If the federal funds rate lowers interest rates a quarter of a point, it's, the money market is going to drop immediately a quarter of a point and vice versa. And money market yields have, have gone from zero in January of last year to now four and a half percent. Very, very quick movement in interest rates because they're very sensitive to short-term treasury bill rates, which are very sensitive to what the Fed does. So keep in mind, don't be hoodwinked from a bank making you think that the money market savings account at the bank is the same as a money market mutual fund. And, you know, people are asking me, how do I do this? How do I do this? I mean, if you're computer literate, just go to Vanguard or Fidelity and open up an account and choose their government money market account. Now, some of you are not computer literate, uh, and I've had to deal with this uh, because it's difficult to, to open up an account. So Fidelity has offices uh, here in New Jersey that you can actually walk into uh, and open up an account uh, and open up a money market fund. Uh, and uh, in the Jersey Shore area here, I believe there's one in Red Bank and there's one in Manalapan. There's also one in Princeton. So if you Google Fidelity Investments near me, you'll see a list of the different uh, branches to do that. Uh, and there'll be a phone number there. You can only go in by appointment. So call them up and say, look, I'd like to open up an account and then go down there and tell them you want a U.S. Treasury uh, money market fund. So that's the way to do it. But if you're computer literate, you could just do it online. You could wire the money in. Or you can overnight a check. Not a difficult thing to do. And you could um, access that money uh, online if you need to do that. Now, is, is money market funds a long-term solution uh, for money? It's not. You know, money market funds are a step up from bank accounts. And, and I always get a kick out of what uh, uh, Richard Kiyosaki says, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He always says, savers are losers. Right? And he says that because the rate of return you get in savings is way below the inflation rate, way below what you could do by investing the money instead. So, I mean, if you know, if, if, if a person out there is looking to invest money for a better rate of return and money markets and everything else, then you see a financial planner like myself, and we'll show you programs. We'll show you managed money programs from conservative to aggressive uh, that uh, over time may be able to get a better return or should get a better return uh, than a money market fund or a savings account or a CD. But if you're just a bank person, you're just a saver, and you want your money guaranteed all the time, uh, then a money market accounts beat out bank accounts uh, by far. A, the yields are multiples higher uh, is your bank account paying you 4.5%? Uh, then you may want to switch it to a U.S. Treasury money market. Uh, is there a possibility that your bank could fail? Well, if that's true, and that's true of every bank, uh, then a money market mutual fund may be for you because it can't fail. So if I could put my money in a place that's guaranteed and can't fail uh, and is paying 4.5% and multiples of what my bank is paying, that's where I want to be. And the problem with banks is that, you know, for many of them, uh, either they make bad loans, that's one way that banks fail, or they make bad investments where they buy long-term treasury bonds at 2%, interest rates go up, and the value of those bonds drop tremendously, and all their equity is gone. And that's the issue that we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank and a lot of the big banks now. Or or they're going to fail because of derivative failure. Uh I mentioned last week the list of derivatives of these banks, and uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, Goldman Sachs, I think $55 trillion 
uh, Chase Bank, $50 trillion, and you can go right down the line of these big banks. That's what's going to bring down the big banks. The small banks are being brought down by duration risk in their portfolio of bonds. Now, Senator um, uh, John Kennedy, my favorite senator <laughs> from Louisiana, uh, the guy's a piece of work, very witty, very funny, um, but knows how to explain something. So uh, not this past week, but the week before. Again, I'm, I'm recording this on, on May 17th. He confronted former uh, Silicon Valley Bank CEO Greg Becker about his decision-making preceding the bank's failure. And he, he did this at the Senate Banking Committee hearing on uh, Tuesday. And, and this is what he had to say. For being here, Mr. Becker, when, uh, when interest rates go up, the price of government bonds, especially long, long-term, long-maturity government bonds, goes down, doesn't it? Yes. And you don't have to be Einstein's cousin to know that, do you? No, you don't. Okay. Now, your bank had uh, 55% of its assets invested in government bonds, didn't it? Roughly, yes. And the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, didn't it? Yes, it did. And the value of your assets went down dramatically, didn't it? Yes, it did. Okay. And, and you didn't have hedges, did you? Senator, as previously mentioned, the decision around hedges was made by our asset liability committee. Mr. So, Becker, you were the CEO of the bank. You didn't have hedges, did you? Senator, there were hedges that were put in place, but I don't recall the details around when they were put in place. You're the CEO and you didn't, you had 55% of your assets in government bonds and you don't know whether you were hedged or not? Senator, as previously mentioned, I don't have access to my SVB documents, so... <laughs> well, yes, I, I know that and I wasn't CEO. You weren't hedged. Now, if you bought those hedges, that would have cut into your profits, wouldn't it? Senator, I don't know the details of the decisions that the team were evaluating. But if you bought a hedge, the hedge costs money, and it would have decreased your profits, wouldn't it? Do hedges cost money? Yes, they do. And so if you bought hedges, you'd have less money, right? Senator, it depends upon, yes, they would cost money, but it depends upon how they... And if you'd made less money, that would have affected your bonus, wouldn't it? Senator, our compensation was predominantly long-term in nature. And so I know there's been lots of discussions about compensation being short-term. From my Becker, you made a really stupid bet that went bad, didn't you? Senator, and the taxpayers of America had to pick up the tab for your stupidity, didn't they? Senator, there were a series of events, unprecedented events that occurred that led us to where we are today. No, this wasn't unprecedented. This was bone deep, down to the marrow, stupid. <laughs> you got you to love John Kennedy. Uh, 
I felt bad for the guy. I mean, how would you like to sit there? You know, your bank just failed. Uh, he calls you stupid, basically. How did you not hedge it? And probably you didn't do it because it was going to affect your bonus. Uh, unbelievable. Now, at that same hearing, now, now let's juxtapose, that's how you say it, the chairman, I think, of this committee, um, John Fetterman, you know, this guy, I mean, I think Biden's bad. This guy's really, you know, he's had a stroke last year. They still ran him. Uh, apparently, he got elected, if you believe the election. Uh, the guy, when he came to Congress, then went into a deep depression. Um, was at Walter Reed Hospital for how many weeks? I don't even know. Uh, and uh, now he's back, but I don't know if he's fully back. Now, um, compare this conversation or this, this statement with what Kennedy just said. It's astonishing. That's like if you have, I mean, like, uh, and, and they also realize is that, that, that now they have it's in, it's a, guaranteed, a guaranteed way to be saved. By, again, by no matter no, but, but, but how? You know, so it, it, it's, you know, isn't it appropriate that the, those kinds of, that this kind of control should be more stricter to prevent this kind of thing from going? Or should we just go on and start bailing and sailing whoever bank, regardless of how, how their, their conduct is? Give you an example. Uh, the Republicans want to give a, a work requirement for SNAP. You know, for a, 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 a hungry family has to, to have these this kind of penalties or these some kinds of word working uh, requirements. Shouldn't you have a working requirement after we sail your bank, the billions of your bank? Because they seem to be more pre- preoccupied uh, when than SNAP uh, and uh, requirements for works for hungry people, but not about protecting the tax the tax papers you know that will bail no matter whatever does about a bank to crash it what did he just say um this guy is like on the banking uh committee he's one of a hundred people in this country that is in a powerful most powerful legislative body in congress and this is what we have. And the Democrats would never let this guy, you know, they should have took him out of the race. And once he went to the hospital, it was depression. He was non-functional. As you can see, he's still non-functional. And I feel bad for the guy. I'm not making fun of him. Uh, the guy's obviously had a stroke. And what else? God knows what precipitated that stroke. Uh, I have a guess or two. Because uh, he's a young man. Uh, but, um, but this guy, you know, this guy should not be in Congress. But the Democrats don't care about him. You know, they just care about power and 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 they don't want him to step down. That is a Democratic senator, uh, a Democratic governor in Pennsylvania, which would nominate another Democrat. But this guy is non-functional now and, and he really should resign from Congress because we can't have this. I mean, this this is an embarrassment to see this guy try to speak uh, in a congressional hearing. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. All right, let's take, let's take a short break. Uh, my name is Luz Katigna. You're listening to the financial physician. Don't go away. All right. Today we're, um, out of town. I'm in Europe today. I'm in Greece. I'm in Mykonos, Greece, if I'm correct, uh, on a 10 day cruise. And 
Uh, hopefully we're having a good time. I don't know. I'm recording this on, on May 17th, and I don't leave till May 19th. So uh, who knows? Maybe the cruise ship went down, and I'm dead, and I sound like a ghost on the radio. I don't know, but I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm having a great time with my wife, Sue. Uh, in, uh, uh, we went to Rome uh, last week, and now we're in uh, doing all the Greek islands, Athens, and all that. And we'll be back next week live. I'm getting back on Thursday uh, on June 1st. And we'll be here, uh, I guess it's June 4th, uh, will be the Sunday. We'll be back live with you for, uh, I guess it's going to be three more weeks, four more weeks uh, live. Uh, if you're just tuning in now, I mentioned when I opened the program that after 23 years, uh, we're no longer going to be broadcasting live on 92.7 WOBM. We're going to go podcast only. Uh, I've made that decision after thorough contemplation and and prayer and uh, everything else that goes into making such a big decision. But um, after 23 years, I think uh, this this show will be best served on the podcast. And it'll be up on Sundays at the same time. If you're used to listening to podcasts, it'll be up by 9 a.m. Sunday morning. We'll also be doing midweek podcasts. We're going to be doing a lot of video on our Rumble channel. And uh, we're going to be going internet. And, you know, that's that's the future now. And for those of you who are not internet capable, you got to get internet capable. If you want to listen to this program, get somebody in your family to uh, help you out with a smartphone or a tablet or a computer and show you how to uh, listen to the podcast. It's not hard. And anybody listening to me now can learn how to do that. And now more than ever, it's going to be important uh, that you tune in each and every week to the Financial Physician Podcast. And it's always available at the Financial Physician com. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. It's, it's available a lot more places. Uh, and uh, I imagine that a vast number of the live listeners will be going over to the podcast. And uh, I think you'll find it uh, convenient to listen to the podcast at any time you want, day or night. You don't have to listen to it early Sunday morning. Uh, you can listen to it more than once. Uh, you could share it with friends. Always appreciate that. Put it on your social media. And uh, just realize on a podcast, we're going to talk a lot more about subjects that I have to self-censor myself here a little bit on. Uh, on podcasts, I could say whatever I want uh, uh, about any subject uh, and not worry about it. Now, Rumble, which is where the video podcast will be, uh, is not YouTube. I've been banned for life for YouTube for challenging the election uh, back in 2021 uh, for my views on COVID vaccines and everything else and everything I said was true and has been borne out. Uh, but anyway, uh, YouTube is that way. It's owned by Google. Uh, rumble has been set up as an alternative to YouTube and, uh, they don't censor over there. So I can pretty much say anything I want. Uh, and, uh, I could also use salty language uh, for those who know me that I, I could, I know how to use salty language when I need to, uh, but can't do it here on the program. So we still have four more weeks live here on uh, WOBM. So it's not until, uh, I guess, July weekend. I should have, you know, at the break, I should have looked it up. Let me look it up now. I'm going to try to find out the exact date uh, that I'm going to be. Um, uh, it'll be Sunday, July 2nd. Yes. So it'll be... Uh, just before Fourth um, uh, of July, uh, that Sunday, we'll not be here on WOBM. We'll only be here. We'll only be on the podcast at thefinancialposition.com or any other place that you just get podcasts. Just Google my name at the podcast. You'll find me. And I, I really pray and hope that those of you who have listened to the show live all these years do migrate over uh, to the podcast at the Financial Physician. 
Sports.com, uh, Sports Illustrated, uh, has really gotten woke, just like a bunch of other entities and companies that we've talked about in this program, Bud Light, now Miller Light, Disney, uh, and and all these companies have gotten woke, uh, just lost business. I mean, Bud Light's lost 26% of their business. Uh, Fox News got rid of uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, and uh, they're down 70%. <laughs> viewership talk about committing suicide uh media suicide fox news is an example that would be taught in business classes and journalism classes for years years to come uh but sports illustrated now uh got blasted last week uh they released uh they have uh, i think four different covers uh they, they don't release just one edition they have four different covers on them and one of them is a man oh yes a transgender they call them transgender women I call them men. They're, they're not women. Uh, but um, Sports Illustrated clearly sought to ingratiate itself with the radical left when they put a trans pop star, Kim Petras, on a swimsuit cover. Uh, but just like Bud Light, you know, they're not ingratiating themselves with their customers, uh, which certainly aren't left-wing knots. Uh, so last week, Sports Illustrated released a series of swimsuit issues this week with four different cover models. Megan Fox, Brooks Nader, Kim Petras, which is that transsexual, and Martha Stewart. I don't know what I'm more disturbed about. Is it Martha Stewart at 70-something years old on the cover? It's kind of creepy if you've seen it. Uh, she don't look half bad, but I, I don't know how much Photoshopping was done. Probably a lot. Uh, uh but I, I don't know where I'm more disturbed about. Probably the the man that's dressed as a woman uh, on the on the cover of um, it's just unbelievable. And of course, you know, people just got totally offensive on offense on that at Twitter. Uh, here's a Twitter post from someone: Kim Petras is a man, so offensive. Where are the women's rights activists? Or do they only scream loud when there's no backlash involved? This is a complete mockery of real women. Sorry, fellas, you cannot be better at being a woman than a real woman can. Uh, so that's uh, Sports Illustrated. Uh, oh, now, uh, did you hear this story? Now these transgender guys um, are joining sororities. And the national uh, uh, chapter of these sororities are telling the, the local chapters that they have to take these people, things, Three Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority sisters from the University of Wyoming uh, are suing because they have this six foot two, whatever, 240 pound guy dressed as a girl, part of their sorority. They had to take him in. He sits there and he just watches all the women go by uh, and go into the shower and everything else. Uh, uh, it's outrageous. You know, in this sorority, in most sororities, men and boys are not allowed anywhere but the first floor. On the second floor and the third floor usually is where the showers are, where they sleep and everything else. Men are not allowed up there. Very, very strict. Unless you're a transgender. Then you're allowed up there because you identify as a woman, of course. I mean, just when you think you can't get more insane, it does. And uh, so this local chapter is now suing uh, to get uh, these people, you know, this guy anyway, out of, out of the, the sorority. I mean, is that, isn't there nothing sacred anymore? Um, talk about pushing the envelope. This is a woman's, uh, but again, what's a woman? 
You know, nobody else can define it. Uh, I can, uh, but many people can't. Is it if you identify, it's the gender you identify with, they say. So last week, uh, or the week before last again, because I'm taping this on May 17th, on Laura Ingram's show, she had some of the girls from the sorority and their um, their attorney, uh, and, and they talked about this. Yeah, we were all shocked. I can speak for myself saying, never thought this would happen to me, um, especially in a sorority in a space for women. We were never told it was a unisex space. We joined under the impression that it was a single-sex organization. Well, Jalen, I, I read the accounts of what made the sisters uh, of the sorority uncomfortable about Artemis. What did he say to you or to any of you that you know that made you uncomfortable? There were a lot of uncomfortable moments in the sorority house, and it just goes to show the importance of women's spaces, ultimately. And that's why we're here today, is we're fighting for the importance of women's spaces and what it truly means to be a woman. We were promised from the beginning that we would have a sisterhood, meaning only females. And our national sorority has failed us. They have blatantly ignored us and ignored our values and valued someone else over us in, these in this uncomfortable situation. Yeah, well, Cassie, we reached out to the KKG national chapter, uh, and they told us that while we cannot comment in detail on this pending litigation, it contains numerous false allegations. KKG values diversity and does not discriminate based on classes protected by state, local, or federal law. Well, Cassie, I, I guess they're relying on federal law here. I don't think Wyoming um, has state protections in this regard, but nevertheless... It looks like they're going to lean on the feds to win this case for them. Laura, I just don't see a way out for them. They want everyone to believe that being a woman is nothing more than wearing lipstick and the pronouns that you use. And we all know that it amounts to womanhood. It amounts to a lifetime of experiences. And that's what they seek to deprive these young women of. And that's what we intend to fight for. Now, Cassie, I guess Artemis doesn't live in the house uh, and according to the lawsuit was given a waiver so he didn't have to live there and why why is that Laura, we've seen extreme preferential treatment given to the individual involved, and it's it's very disheartening that when you're a six foot two, two hundred and sixty pound man, you're treated as the victim in today's society. But the bylaws are very clear. This is an all woman's organization. Kappa was formed under over a hundred years ago to be that support system for women, so that they could compete in the classroom against men. And now we just cease to exist. We're nothing more than an idea of self identification. So uh, these sorority, I feel bad for these girls. I feel for bad for girls and women in general. Uh, in sports now, they're you know the, the men are taking over. They're just saying they're a girl. This guy Leah Thomas. As a matter of fact, um, what's her name? Uh, uh, Riley Gaines, who is a, a highly accomplished swimmer, uh, has had to compete against this guy Leah Thomas. This guy, this guy that identifies as a girl. Uh, the guy couldn't win you know, in the men's league. Uh, but he goes over to the women's side and now he's winning and he's setting world records. And, you know, in, in a, a sane society, we wouldn't even be talking about this. It just goes to show how insanity is being normalized here. 
in sports and everything else. So she testified on Capitol Hill the week before last, and, and, and this is what she had to say. The overwhelming majority of those girls who were specifically at that NCAA championships where we race with Leah Thomas, who's, of course, a biological male, the overwhelming majority of us girls felt so uncomfortable. We felt betrayed. We felt belittled. We, it's, of course, in the locker room, especially. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. It's, again, it's this feeling of the best word to describe it is traumatic. Um, no one protected us. No one stood up for us. And so that's exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. Again, I was totally thrusted into this position. This is not, never something I wanted. Um, it's still not something I want to be doing, yet I find it necessary. But the message that it sends, it's, it sends a message that we don't matter, that our feelings, our safety, our privacy, it doesn't matter. We should smile and step aside and allow these men into our spaces or else you are a bigot. I want you to describe to this committee, I was reading your, uh, in the second paragraph, uh, where, and I'm just going to read it, I discovered that the overwhelming majority of the girls shared extreme discomfort being forced to strip down in front of a male who was intact with and exposing male genitalia in the same room. After seeing how this affected every girl at the meet, I decided to stand up and speak out. I resolved to do everything I could to ensure that no other girls feel alone in the fight for their right to compete on a level playing field. Describe that locker room experience to this committee, please. First of all, we were not forewarned. We would be sharing a changing space. No one told us. No one asked for our consent. We did not give our consent to undress in front of a male. Yet the only time we became aware of this was when it was presented in front of us and it was too late. Um, so what that kind of looked like in the vein of being extremely transparent, a six foot four, he's actually taller than six foot one, a six foot four male walks in, disrobes, and is fully intact with male genitalia while we're simultaneously undressing as 18 to 22 year old girls. All right. So that's bad enough. I mean, it's bad enough that, uh, you know, this guy's in the locker room doing what he's doing. I mean, this is ridiculous. Uh, it's, but what's worse than that is that these women have no chance of winning. I mean, their sport has been taken away from them and has been corrupted uh, with uh, XY chromosomes. Uh, and it's certainly not fair to women. And we need more people like Riley Gaines stepping up. All right. So we had a pre recorded first hour. The second hour is going to be the best of Lou. I hope you enjoy it. Don't go away. It's time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward. No-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions, because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. All right, welcome back. If you missed any of the show, just go to thefinancialphysician.com, where we have the podcast of this program. Paul will have it up right after the show is over. Today's a very special pre-recorded show. We have great topics ahead of you uh, today. This is the best topics, financial topics we talked about over the course of the year. Let's start off. I haven't talked about 
this subject in a long time, and it it's always gets under my skin because I hate it. And it's about annuities, right? And, and, and those who are long term listeners to the program know I hate annuities, and I'm one of the few financial advisors that do because I don't sell them. I don't make tons of commissions on these things. Uh, and I haven't given any client an annuity in 20 years. Uh, to provide annuities to your clients, you have to have an insurance license and a securities license. I let my insurance license go years ago. I'm not big into uh, selling insurance. So I, I let that go, and I, 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 I'm so against annuities. I didn't need the license to do that. And, 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 and I'm going to explain annuities. Now, most people who have annuities never went shopping for annuities. They never looked for them. They were sold them. And the first thing to keep in mind, and you always got to think about this, who's making the money? How much money are they making? Are there, is there any conflict of interest? Whenever anybody suggests an annuity to you, I suggest that your radar should go up. Because what most people who have annuities don't know is that they pay the highest commissions of any investment product by far to the quote-unquote financial advisors or financial salespeople uh, that sell them. So I want to go over the pros and cons of annuities. What are they, um, uh, and what uh, what they're supposed to do? That, uh, but th- there's more negatives than positives. Now I'll go on to say that is there a place for annuities in certain people's lives? Yes, there is. They, they work fine for certain people in certain situations, but most people who have annuities, namely retired people, shouldn't have them in the first place. Anybody who has annuities that in an IRA, uh, it should be illegal. And we'll explain all that to you here in the opening segment of The Financial um, Physician. Now, annuity is a contract. It's a contract between you and an insurance company. Now, keep that. always keep that in mind. It's a contract. It's an insurance product. Now, we could talk about how it came about, but, you know, the insurance companies uh, saw all this money going into mutual funds back in the 60s, 70s and such, uh, and 80s. Uh, and they lobby their congressmen. And keep in mind, insurance companies have a powerful lobby in Washington. Uh, and they uh, had laws passed that gave annuities certain tax benefits. Number one, in an annuity, the profits in an annuity grow tax deferred. So you don't pay tax every year or capital gains on the growth of them. But we'll talk about the tax trap later on there. And uh, and they were able to compete with mutual funds and other investments. So you put money in an annuity. How do you do it? Uh, you could put a single premium in. You could put a hundred thousand in. You could put as much as you want. Unlike other retirement plans like IRA accounts or four hundred one k's, there's no limits on how much you can put in there. And you put the money in there, and you make a contract with the insurance company that at some point you're going to be able to get payouts from that annuity, either in a lump sum, a whole amount, or through payouts over time. And when you think of the word annuity, what does it mean? It typically means fixed payments over a certain amount of time. So think about a pension. A pension is an annuity, right? You know, if you take a monthly pension for your life, that's an annuity. Money comes every month at the same time for as long as you live, and maybe your spouse gets part of that money after you die. That's what an annuity is. But annuities, for the most part, most people don't take periodic payments. You know, most people put money in an annuity to grow tax deferred and then to take the whole thing out at some point. So what type of annuities are? Well, the three most common annuities are 
variable annuities, fixed annuities, and index annuities. If you have an annuity, you have one of these three. So what's a variable annuity? A variable annuity, think about mutual funds that have market risks. So you put the money in this annuity contract with an insurance company. There's something called sub-accounts where you could put money in a growth fund or a bond fund or what have you. And there's all kinds of different options that you have. And the value of that annuity goes up or down based on what the markets do. That's called a variable annuity. Now, the gains you have year over year, not taxed until you take the money out. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Fixed annuities are like a savings account. You put the money in, there's no risk as far as the market going up or down is. It just pays you interest rate. So you can put money in a five-year fixed annuity. It's going to pay you 3% a year. That's fine. Then you have what's called equity index annuities. Now, these are very popular now. Uh, not popular for investors. They're pop- popular for people selling them uh, because these tend to pay the highest commissions. And uh, what these are, are they're fixed annuities where your return is based on what the stock market does. There's something called a participation rate. So say the S&P 500 uh, goes up 10%. Well, if the participation rate is 30%, you're going to get a 3% rate of return. Because the stock market went up 10, you participate 30% of that return, you get 3%. And the participation rate varies from one contract to the other. And that's one of the most important things about that. Now, now, one thing I will say about annuities, they're so complex that the average investor has no idea what they're investing in. They just take that nice young man or young woman who uh, they trusted uh, to push them in the right direction uh, because they know nothing, uh, and they did what this young person said or that, that, that banker in that corner office that the teller sent you over to because you have 200000 in a savings account and they wanted to exploit that money. And most people selling you the annuity doesn't know how it works. Now, I've been in the financial services business for 40 years. I still look at annuity contracts and don't fully understand some of them. Because each annuity contract is different. They have different parameters, different restrictions, different fees. I'm a certified financial planner. 40-year career. And I still look at some of these contracts and don't understand them. How can you as an investor? You don't. You, you invest in them because of trust. And keep in mind, an annuity is not a life insurance policy, even though life insurance companies provide them. It's not a savings account. Again, it's supposed to be for a stream of income when you retire. So theoretically, say you put 100000 in an annuity, it grows tax-deferred until you retire, and then the theory is that you give up the principal for a lifetime stream of monthly payments. That's called annuitizing your account. Now, you can take the money out any time. You can take it all out. And we're going to talk about the, the cost. Uh, I call annuities, and I, I, I coined this term 30 years ago, the roach motels of investing. Remember the old commercial? You can get in, but you can't get out. Well, that's what annuities are. They're very liquid with very, very uh, significant negative um, aspects of getting your money back. Now, an annuity contract, it's the opposite of life insurance. It pays you while you live, where a life insurance pays you when you die. And, and, and it's a big business. 
In 2021, total annuity sales in the United States was $255 billion. Now, is this because you and I were looking for annuities? No, no, no. You sit down with that uh, that nice financial advisor uh, that you came across, and, and he sits down with you and says, look, I got the best thing for you. This is an annuity. This is the way it works. They're going to make it sound like it's the best thing in the world. And you say, oh, okay. That's how $255 billion finds its way into annuities. And that's how $20 billion of that money goes into the pockets of people selling them. And always keep in mind, when anybody talks to you about annuity, this is the highest compensation that a financial, again, I don't want to say advisor because a lot of, most people in the financial services business are not advisors. They're salespeople. They're taught how to sell financial products, whether it be mutual funds, stocks, bonds, annuities. They're not financial planners. Now, if somebody has, you know, a certified financial planner designation, well, they're financial planners. And that doesn't mean that they're not pushing annuities, too. Many CFPs do. Just not this one. So, uh, again, a fixed annuity, you get a fixed interest rate. That's the most risk-free. The variable annuity goes up and down with the stock market. Uh, an equity index annuity is tied to the stock market in some way. You can never lose. If the stock market goes down 20% like this year, equity index annuity is going to pay you zero. Is zero a good rate of return? Well, it's better than minus 20. And that's why you see these commercials on TV that you can only make money, you can never lose. Well, if inflation is uh, 8% this year and you made zero, well, the, you lost to inflation, right? but certainly better than being down 20%. And that's the selling point that people push on these equity index annuities. They look, you can only make money. You can never lose. The market goes up, you make money. The market goes down, you lose nothing. But the question is, how much do I make when the markets go up? It could be a very small percentage of it. So, you know, you retire, you could say, you know, I want to give up um, – uh, the money, I have $200,000. Uh, I'd rather get uh, 1300 a month for the rest of my life. All right, that's called annuitization. I don't recommend it. Now, I shouldn't say I don't recommend it. In some situations, it makes sense. For some people, having a guaranteed monthly income for the rest of their life is a smart thing. Who are these people? These are people that are not good with money. These are people who will blow it. These are people who have vices, gambling, drinking, drugs, whatever, and giving up the principal to know that every month they're going to get a payment is the right thing. For most people, it's the wrong thing. Why would you give your money away to somebody else so they can give it back to you in dribs and drabs over the course of your life? Where you don't have any access to the principal and there is no inheritance for your children. It's usually a big mistake, and I usually advise people against it. So what are some of the, the cons of annuities? The pros are that it grows tax-deferred. So, you know, if you're in a high tax bracket and it's growing, it doesn't go on your tax return, at least while it's accumulating. You're never going to avoid the taxes. But that's one of the benefits. If you're in a high tax bracket when you're working, here's a way that you can put money away for retirement and you don't have to worry about paying taxes when you're in a high tax bracket when you're earning money. 
Okay, makes sense. But you're not going to avoid the taxes. That's about the only advantage I see in annuities, is the tax advantage. But again, that could come out to bite you later on, so we'll talk about that in a second. So what's the disadvantage of annuities? The first disadvantage is fees and commissions. And the average fees within an annuity itself, you don't see it because it just comes off your return, is 2 to 3% a year. That's really expensive compared to other alternative investments like mutual funds and, and bonds and things like that. And uh, it is the highest fee structure that I've ever seen in investments. And I find that very troubling. What type of fees do we see in there? Well, the first one, the biggest one is surrender charges. And, and this is the big, big deal. Uh, surrender charges are, you put 100000 in an annuity. The insurance guy is going to tell you, hey, there's no commissions in this. I get paid by the insurance company. Don't worry about it. No money's going to come out of your money. So what happens is you put your 100000 in the in the annuity. The insurance company may pay them 6 7 8 10% commission. Must be pretty nice. Somebody invest 100,000 with me, I make 8 grand. That's nice. But who pays for this? Well, the insurance company is going to lay the money out to the agent and then they're going to make it back off of you through the 2 to 3% annual fees that they're charging on your money. So think about it. If they're paying out 8% and they're, they're charging 3% a year in management fees, they're going to get that money back in four years, less than four years. And the rest of the time, it's profit. But what happens if you don't stay around long enough for them to make their money back and you just want to take your money out? You need it. You want to do something else with it, whatever. This is when the surrender fees kick in. They're going to get it back from you. The insurance company never loses. Only you will lose. So in the first year, the first, the first year surrender fee may be 10%. I've seen it as high as 18%. And that fee may be there for eight years, 10 years. It varies based on contract. It also varies on how much money the salesman's making on the annuity. I've seen 15-year surrender fees. Outrageous. So if somebody tells you, oh, it's not going to cost you anything, that's a lie. If you take your money out, you are going to get hit with a surrender fee. So if you look at, and many times, the salesperson doesn't tell you about the surrender fee schedule. They just say, oh, no, there's no commissions. The insurance company pays me. No worries. But if you look at the policy and you look at withdrawals and you go to page 56 uh, in the policy and you see the surrender fee schedule, you'll see the first year could be 8%, second year 7%, and 6% of the original investment all the way down. So now if you want to get your money out, it's going to cost you a chunk. And I can't tell you how many people don't know that because they come to me and I see they have the annuity and I say, what's the surrender fee schedule? What are you talking about, Lou? Bring me the policy or I call the insurance company. We find out that they're locked up. And they can't take their money out and do something else with it without a huge bite. So that's the number one fee. It's really one. That's the one that pays the commission to the agent who's not making it off you, by the way. Then there's something called mortality and expense charges. Well, this could be as high as one and a quarter percent a year. 
And this pays back the insurance company if you die. And, because if you die, there's no surrender fees to your beneficiary. So they got to insure against that. So you got to pay for that insurance. Then there's the administration fees. What's it cost to run the annuity? And that's, that's significantly high as well. Now, I call annuities the roach motels of investments. And this is the reason why. Meaning you can get in, you can't get out. The first thing is the surrender fee, as I just mentioned which can be onerous. I remember I had a client see me, oh, God, must be 10 years ago. And a listener to this program, uh, and I always offer listeners to this program, no obligation, complimentary first appointment, and we go over a lot of things. And they say, you know, Lou, I got this annuity, you know, I don't really know how it works. I go, well, how long have you had it? Oh, two years. I said, well, you know what the surrender fee is uh, on this? What's a surrender fee, Lou? <laughs> Well, let me explain to you what a surrender fee is, which by law should have been explained to you before you purchased it. Uh, And I'll look at the policy. I'll call the insurance company. I'll find out that uh, they're at a 6% surrender fee right now. Now, this guy had three annuities worth a million dollars. So 6% on a million dollars was 60 grand. Boy, whoever sold him these annuities made like 80 grand off of him on one sale. Can you imagine that? That's why I'm saying your radar has got to go up when someone's talking to you about annuities because this is where they make their money. They may make 2% on a mutual fund. They're going to make 8% on an annuity. What do you think they're going to suggest to you? It's human nature, right? And they'll talk themselves into the fact that the annuity is great for you because they'll, they'll convince themselves they'll rationalize it. But it's certainly good for them. You want to talk about a conflict of interest? There you got it. Now, 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 most, most annuities allow you to take something out every year without a penalty. Usually it's 10%. Uh, every year you can take 10% out without that surrender fee. But you can't take all your money up. So like this, this gentleman who came and saw me with a million dollars in annuities did not know that there was a penalty to take the money out. Conveniently, uh, the salesperson did not explain that. And who actually looks at the policy when you get it in the mail? Do you look at page 56 on withdrawals? Of course not. So that's the first illiquidity issue, the first roach motel issue, if you will. The second one is the tax trap. Now, I mentioned before that annuities are tax deferred. Now, I'm not talking about IRA annuities. Now, annuities are tax deferred to begin with. Why anybody would put an IRA that's already tax deferred into an annuity, I have no idea. In my opinion, it should be legal for annuities to be part of an IRA. Uh, why would you do that? I have no idea. That's called a qualified annuity. Uh, uh, non-qualified annuity is when you put after-tax money in and it grows tax-deferred. So you put 100000 in, it's now worth 150 The 50% that's been deferred is taxable. And one of the negatives of the annuity is that you don't have any capital gains tax rates. Everything's ordinary income. So if you're in a very high tax bracket and you take that money out, you may be paying 30, 35% tax on it, as well as state tax. Whereas if you had a mutual fund and you took out the money and it was a capital gain, maybe you only pay 15%. So a lot of times people come to me and say, yeah, I've had this annuity for eight years, 10 years. Ah, okay, you, you bypass the surrender fee because you, you held it long enough. You don't have to worry about that. But now we have to worry about income tax. And one of the, the negatives of an annuity is that if, if, you, if you put 100 in and it's worth 150, the first 50,000 that comes out is taxable. The profits always come out first. 
It's not like you say, well, wait a second, two-thirds of this money is return on my own capital. Shouldn't I just be paying tax on one-third of what I take out? No, that's not the way it works. The profits come out first. So now we have the tax trap. People say to me, oh, Lou, I can't cash in this annuity. I'm just going to have $150,000 or $100,000 income here. That's going to blow my tax bracket out. It's going to kick me out of the benefits I have for property tax reimbursement as a senior. Uh, it may cause my Medicare Part B to go up. Uh, all kinds of crazy stuff starts to happen when you have a chunk of taxable income that comes in. Now, you could switch from one annuity to another annuity to another annuity. As long as you stay in that annuity universe, you could defer the taxes, but it's not going away. Also, if you inherit money, say, say I inherit a stock that's gone up 100% from my mother, I get what's called a stepped-up cost basis, meaning that the cost for capital gains purposes to me is the value at the date my mother died. You inherited an annuity. Uh-uh. There's no stepped-up cost basis. You're paying income tax on a profit at ordinary income tax rates. Um, so, again, it's the Roach Motel. You can get in, but you can't get out. Many people have pushed these annuities because only one reason, and I know somebody, I have a friend in the industry, um, and all he sells is annuities. And I ask him, well, why? I mean, is this in your client's best interest? He goes, I make the biggest commissions on them. Well, why would I sell anything else? Is that person working for you? No. They're working for themselves. So nobody goes out and buys an annuity. Uh, people um, are sold annuities. And I hate it. Because they're trapped. And I never like to be illiquid. As an investor, I don't like to be illiquid. I like to be able to liquidate my money, do something else with it. You know, what if something comes along uh, a year after you put your life savings in an annuity and you have another option or another opportunity? You can't switch. You can't get your money out without getting hit. I never like that. I like to be able to zig and zag. And what if an emergency happens? You know, you, you, you know, your family needs money. You know, your, your son lost his job. You may be losing a house or you want to help him out. Right now you got to worry about what's going to cost me to get this money. And then when you convert it at the end, if you want to, you don't have to, you could take the whole money out. But if you convert it into an annuity where you're starting to get monthly income, well, if you choose the, the one that gets you the most money, which is called the life settlement, the life annuity, and you get two payments and die, that's it. I have $200,000 that I just converted to a, uh, an income annuity for 1500 a month, and I get 3000 back over two months and die. The insurance company keeps the money. Wow, that's a great deal for the insurance company, not for your beneficiaries. Or you may claim that, well, I want to have you know income for my wife as well or my husband, so I'm going to choose the spousal benefit. Where if I die, my spouse gets 50% of what I was getting. Well, why should my spouse get 50% of what I was getting? Why shouldn't they get the same amount? And then when my spouse dies, that's it. There's no inheritance. There's nothing left. Same is true of a pension. I mean, if you think about it, pensions and annuities are kind of the same thing. Many people, when, they, when they're retiring, they have an option of uh, taking a lump sum and investing it on their own, putting it in their own IRA account. Or they take the, the monthly pension or the, the survivor pension with their wife gets 50% or so forth. I almost always advise take the lump sum. That way your wife doesn't have to take a 50% pay cut when you die. And when your spouse dies, there's money left to for your kids to inherit. Never give up, your in general, never give up your money for somebody else to give it back to you. Doesn't make any sense. 
You put it you put it in a shoebox under your bed and take out that money every month. At least, you know, when you die, that money's still there for your, your spouse and for your kids. So annuities, uh, they're all the rage. As I said, $255 billion a year is pushed on investors. Um, there's also, I didn't mention before that, if you take the money out before you're 59 and a half, the profitable portion is penalized 10% as well as income taxes on the profit. So there's all kinds of traps here. And the most important thing is that if you can't explain what that annuity is to me, then why, why are you invested in it? And I have trouble explaining some of these annuities to, to my own clients who come to me with these things. I look in the policy and I'm like, look, I got, I got to call the insurance company. I don't understand what they're saying here. Now, one thing about annuities, uh, and, and this always causes me problems when I talk about this, Uh you have 30 days from the day you sign that contract to pull out. Uh, and when I've talked about annuities on this program, many people have called the, the person who sold it to them two weeks ago and says, you know what? I don't want this annuity. I heard this guy on the radio and it doesn't sound like it's for me. Uh, I want to cancel the contract. And meanwhile, the salesman already spent his uh, $8,000 and he's not happy with me. And I get nasty emails from insurance people and annuity salesman and I get uh, nasty voicemails because my listeners call them up and say, you know what? I have second thoughts about this annuity. I don't want. But unfortunately for too many people, um, it's too late. They're stuck. One thing also to keep in mind as far as risk go, um, if you're on a fixed annuity or an equity index annuity, uh, those are general assets of the insurance company, meaning that if the insurance company went under um, you're out of luck. You're a creditor. Annuities are not FDIC insured. Some states have an insurance pool for it. Uh, but if an insurance company goes under and you have a fixed annuity of any type, uh, you're at risk. You become a creditor. Now, if you have a variable annuity, that's not so because variable annuities are kept in separate accounts and not the general assets of the insurance company and whatever the value is of those annuities would be protected. But again, you have to understand this stuff. Don't put your life savings in any vehicle that you can't basically explain to your son or daughter what it is and what the costs are and what the liquidity issues are regarding it. So be very, very careful. Anybody starts mentioning variable annuities to you, banks are really big in this. They like to, you know, the teller is trained when they see that you have a lot of money in a, a savings account to direct you to that nice young man in the quarter office, so the nice young woman over there. And once they get you in there, uh, the answer to all your problems is an annuity. That radar should go up. And make sure you understand the liquidity issues, the cost, the surrender fees, the tax issues before you do that. And unfortunately, too many people now own annuities because they were sold them, and still don't understand how they work and are surprised to uh, learn that if they try to take their money out, they're going to get hit with a big fee. All right, let's take a break. My name is Lou Skatigna. You're listening to The Financial Physician. Don't go away. 
I'm Lou Scatigna, certified financial planner, author, president of AFM Investments, and the host of The Financial Physician, heard each Sunday morning, 7 to 9, right here on 92.7 WOBM, or anytime at thefinancialphysician.com. Don't let interest rates, inflation, and market volatility keep you awake at night. Come to my Tom's River office for a no-obligation professional diagnosis of your financial health. I'll review your investments, income taxes, and retirement plan. I'll suggest a comprehensive financial estate plan that will improve your financial health and, most importantly, lower your financial risk during these uncertain times. If you are retired or plan to retire, I will show you strategies designed to increase your income and protect your estate from nursing home costs. Call us at 732-905-8100 and get on the road to a healthy financial future. That's 732-905-8100. Join me Sunday morning, 7 to 9, for The Financial Physician right here on 92.7 WOBM or listen to the podcast at thefinancialphysician.com. Securities transactions with Lee Baldwin and Company, member of FINRA and SIPC, registered investment advisory service to Fortitude Advisory Group. Here's Luz Katigna. The need for financial advice, you know, there comes a time in our lives uh, where uh, something's changed. Maybe we're approaching retirement. Maybe we're going, we are retired. Maybe we want to do some end of life planning. Maybe we want to do some estate planning uh, where we need a financial advisor. It's almost impossible for the average person to properly manage their money. Uh, like anything else, I mean, you don't manage your own health care. You don't, you know, you don't go into court without a lawyer. And uh, too many people manage their own money, and they're ver- they're unqualified to do so. Uh, you know, I get a kick. I see some people with a lot of money, and the way they're managing it on their own without professional advice is a disaster. They have no idea what they're doing. Uh, and uh, but there comes a time in our lives when we really do need professional advice. So how do you determine? the proper advisor for you. This is this is a very, very difficult thing for people. And it's difficult because there's a big blur out there between different types of advisors. Anybody can call themselves a financial advisor. But are they an insurance agent? Do they, do they exclusively use insurance products? Are they a stockbroker? Uh, what are they? You know, what are they primarily? Very few people in the financial services industry are a pure financial advisor. Now, if you're looking for the cream of the crop, somebody who could actually call themselves a financial advisor, you're looking at a certified financial planner. You can't get higher than that in financial services. That person has a significant amount of experience in all aspects of money management, not just investments. Has to degrade at taxes, corporate benefits, estate planning, and of life planning, which we're going to touch on in the hour, corporate benefits, financing a house, anything that's money-related, a good certified financial planner can advise you on it. But if your financial advisor is an insurance agent and the answer to every issue is an annuity or life insurance product, that person is not there to advise you on estate planning or taxes or anything else. And you got to understand the difference between financial salesmen and women and financial advisors. So it's very, very tough, you know, for a person to go out there and find somebody that's uh, that's competent. And you want to know what does this person offer me as far as the complete package of having a financial advisor. And you got to watch out for titles. You know, you know, people are impressed by titles. There's a hundred different financial advisor designations out there now. Some of them are strong, other ones are very weak, and it's they're, they're a two or three hour class just to, so somebody can put letters after their name. 
So again, what's the different types of advisors? I'm going to go over it with you. Now, there's a need for each one of these, all right? And it depends what your needs are, which one is right for you. All right, we said before, a certified financial planner, also known as a CFP. They call him a CFP professional now. This is the most prestigious financial advisor designation. There's nothing higher than that. So how do you become a financial a certified financial planner? Three years experience in financial services industry, a bachelor's degree from college, or you don't have to have a bachelor's degree, but you have to have five years of financial planning experience. You have to pass a two-day exam that covers financial planning, taxes, insurance, estate planning, retirement planning. I've it's been a long time since I took that test, but boy, that was a grueling test. To keep your designation, you have to maintain high ethical conduct. It's very easy to lose that designation. Every two years, you have to complete 30 hours of continuing education. Now, uh, my two-year period is up next week, so I'm renewing my CFP certification uh, over the last month. I've been doing all my continuing education. Now, I've been a certified financial planner for 35 years. I've been in financial services. Next year, it's going to be 40 years, and I still have to take continuing education. It's pretty funny because I, I take these classes, and I don't even really study the the, paper, the, the book. I just take the test because I know the answers. I could teach these courses. How annuities work, how mutual funds. I know the answers to this stuff. Oh God! So, but um, so a CFP. If you're looking for comprehensive planner, not somebody just to invest fifty grand for you, but you're looking for somebody that's going to be your right hand person with your taxes, with your estate planning, with your end of life planning, with your income for retirement. Uh, to deal with your 401k rollover when you retire, you're looking for a certified financial planner. And we're going to talk about how everybody gets compensated. But for the most part, dealing with a certified financial planner uh, is no more expensive than dealing with any other financial professional who is not as educated or as competent. Let's talk about a registered representative. What is that? that, that that's, they're also known as stockbrokers or account executives but they often refer to themselves as financial advisors. But what they really are are security salespeople. Now, in addition to being a certified financial planner, I'm a registered representative. I've been a licensed stockbroker for 39 years. Part of financial planning is having the ability to transact securities transactions for your clients. So you'll find that, 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 that most certified financial planners are stockbrokers. And how do you become a stockbroker uh, or a registered representative? You pass a test. That's all it takes. Most people think, well, this person's a stockbroker. They must be really smart. And they must know everything about money. No, it doesn't mean that at all. I passed my registered representative test when I was 23. And that gave me, I took a series, what's called a Series 6 test, which allowed me to sell mutual funds. Did that make me a financial advisor? Absolutely not. I knew nothing. I knew how to sell you a mutual fund, or at least I thought I did. I worked for a company called First Investors. All I did was sell First Investors products. 
I wasn't a financial advisor. I thought I was. I worked in New York City. I thought I was all it. I remember getting out of the Port Authority, walking down 7th Avenue. My office was 2 Penn Plaza, which is the building right in front of Madison Square Garden. As a matter of fact, I was in New York City uh, Thursday night and drove by there, and I looked up, and I said, that's where it all started. But I felt like I was all in with my, my cheap suit and my briefcase, walking down 7th Avenue, going to my office. I certainly was not a financial advisor. I certainly wasn't a financial planner. Then you have registered investment advisor. Okay, this is usually an individual or a firm uh, that works on fees and manages money. We're going to talk the difference between manage money and just somebody selling you some investments. And some RAs are also rep- rep- registered representatives or brokers. I am both. I'm a registered investment advisor um, representative, and I'm also a registered representative for a brokerage. So registered investment advisors, for the most part, charge fees versus commissions, but they could do both. Then you have insurance agents. So insurance agents, they get licensed by the state, they take a test for insurance, and they sell life, health, property, you know, insurance, variable annuities, fixed annuities. The problem with insurance agents is that's what they do, insurance-related products. That does not make them well-rounded financial advisors. The answer to all your issues are going to be a life insurance policy or an annuity. And I know many people in the business who are insurance agent, and that's all they do. That's the answer to everything. Then you have chartered life underwriter. What is that? That's the most prestigious designation in the insurance industry. They're a little bit more rounded in financial planning and so forth, but they're still insurance people. Then you have your accountant. You know, accountant, what do they do? They're tax people. They'll do your tax return. They'll advise you on tax issues. Most accountants are very good at what they do, but I wouldn't consider my accountant my financial advisor. Now, in my case, I'm kind of rare in the business. In addition to being a certified financial planner, a registered representative, a registered investment advisor, I'm also a tax accountant. I'm not a CPA. I'm a CFP. But I've been preparing taxes for 35 years for my clients. For most of my clients, not only am I their financial planner, their investment advisor, their estate planner, I'm also their accountant. And I'm surprised more people don't do both. I mean, I I, I find that taxes go hand in hand with almost everything we do financially. Everything has a tax consequence, Right. And the advantage of dealing with uh, your financial advisor also being your accountant because the right hand always knows what the left hand's doing. Clients of mine who I'm not their accountant, I'm surprised sometimes when they come and see me to do their taxes. Why'd you do that? Oh, I don't know. Well, the thing is, if you're, your accountant is also your financial planner, he'll make sure that you don't do stupid things because he sees everything that's going on in your financial life. Then you got some, like I said before, there's hundreds of designations out there. You got, here's a very weak one. Uh, let's see. 
uh, we uh, certified senior advisor. All right, seniors, we you know big portion of our society now as baby boomers retire. Uh, you can go get take a course. I think it's uh, three hours. Uh, and uh, you can become a certified senior advisor, a CSA. Then you have certified senior consultant, same thing. Then you have certified fund specialist. What does that mean? Uh, this person took a self-study course, passed three short exams, and now they are um, supposedly an expert at mutual funds. So what do you do? Find out what you need in a financial advisor. If you just need a life insurance policy, deal with a, deal with an insurance agent. Right? You just want to buy some mutual funds, you could deal with a broker or some stocks. Are you looking for a comprehensive plan where you're retiring and everything's being considered, your taxes, your Social Security, your income, how do I get income, how do I protect what I have, how do I pass on my, my wealth to my, my kids? How do I protect my inheritance from the cost of long-term care? These are all the things that a, a certified financial planner will do for you. Now, let's talk about the two different ways money is taken care of or how you invest money. The first one is you go see a broker or, or again, a financial advisor, quote-unquote, and just realize that 80% of people call themselves financial advisors are financial salespeople and can't advise you on taxes or estate planning or how Medicaid works for nursing homes. That's not what they do. So just always be aware that, you know, is this person selling me something? Are they working for me? Are they working for themselves? So, you know, and I've done both, but but you have financial quote-unquote advisors who work on commission. The first half of my career, I was that person. I worked on commission because that's what most people did at that time. I made commissions mainly for selling mutual funds or annuities. The problem with a commission-based advisor is you go see a commission-based advisor, and I use that term advisor loosely. I, you know, that's not an advisor. It's someone selling you something, making a commission and moving on. And that's the thing with commission-based people is that they don't make anything after the sale. So you're kind of dead to them, and you wind up with what's called a, a static portfolio. It's, 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 you know, whatever investment you have, you continue to have. Nothing, no changes are made. You almost never get a call from that person saying that, look, I don't like the way the market's looking. Let's take an adjustment and make, make let's lower the risk. Let's rebalance the portfolio. You're not going to get those calls for the most part. Why? Because there's no financial interest for that person. They're off looking for the next new client because they got to pay their bills next month. They don't care about you. And that's how people lose a lot of money when markets turn south because, you know, there's nobody watching it. There's nobody making adjustments. It's not until you call the broker and say, hey, John, you know, I'm getting killed here. You know, what do I do? And you say, well, you know, uh, Mr. Client, uh, we can move you into more conservative things. We say, well, why didn't you call me ahead of time and do that? Now, now the damage is done. So you got to be very, very careful. Also, you have to worry about conflicts of interest. Is this commission-based person selling me something because they're selling me an annuity because they're making an 8% commission when I'd be better off with a mutual fund, but they'd only make 2 or 3%? 
So anytime there's commissions involved, your radar always has to go up. And you have to determine, is this you know right for me or right for that? And a lot of times on commission-based products, you're, you're locked up. You know, you take the money out over time, you get penalties and so forth. So you've got to be care- careful with that as well. So what's the other way to do it? Well, the other way to do it is through fee-based planning or money management. And that's the way I think everybody should look at I You should want a fee-based planner. Why? Number one, because they're getting paid every year. They're getting a management fee every single year to manage your money. They have a vested interest in your success. Number two. There's no conflict of interest. They're not going to sell you something. They're not making commissions, so it doesn't matter what you own. They're not going to push you in an annuity because they're getting compensated four times a mutual fund. If a fee-based advisor is making, you know, 1.5% a year managing your money, there is no incentive to push you into something that's not right for you. Also, with fee-based money management, your money's managed it's not static, and, and usually you're paying somebody to look at the markets, to look at your accounts, and make sure if things aren't right, they make adjustments. I don't sell investments for the most part. I manage money. There's a big difference. In money management clients, you know, we watch their money all the time, and we're always making adjustments to the portfolio. I mean, we've had a really bad start of the year. It's been historically bad for stocks and bonds. You know, for our conservative clients, in in February, you know, this spring, we moved them to cash. Our clients today, as we speak, are 100% in U.S. Treasury money market accounts for now. Because we feel that's the best place for them to be in this uncertain time. We'll move them back into their investments at the right time. That's money management. And you pay fees for that. You hear the term uh, used a lot. It's called fiduciary. What's a fiduciary? A fiduciary is a person or an organization or a company that acts on um, behalf of somebody else. A fiduciary has to put their client's interest ahead of their own. That would make sense, don't you think, that anything financially, any advisor you have should put your, uh, your, your well-being ahead of their own? You would think that would be normal. It's not. Now, the brokerage industry now has really put regulations in to make almost everybody a fiduciary. And to be a fiduciary, I mean, the responsibilities are both ethical and legal. A fiduciary is expected to work on behalf of their clients in the best interest of their clients. And uh, registered investment advisors are fiduciaries. Certified financial planners are fiduciaries. So it's good. Always ask a p- potential, again, quote-unquote advisor, are, they, are you a fiduciary to me? And, and that, 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 that tightens things up a lot. They can't just put you in an annuity where they get an 8% commission if they're a fiduciary. They have to make sure that that is in your best interest compared to all their alternatives. So uh, what do you do? I mean, you can't just abdicate 
responsibility for your money to somebody else. You don't want to do that. You want to be involved. I've had I've had too many people come to me and say, Lou, I don't know anything about money. Here, just take my nest egg and you do what you think is the right thing to do. And I don't like that. I, I, I'd rather, no, no, I want you to be involved. Let's talk about how these things work. It's not that complicated. Let's talk about the investments and why we're doing it this way. So don't abdicate. And this happens a lot with uh, typically older widow women. They know they don't know about money because they were never involved in it. The husband took care of everything. And now they'll abdicate to this nice young man, you know, that uh, your friend uses that works for an insurance company. Interview a number of financial advisors. Find out which one you feel most comfortable with. Find out what kind of services they offer you. What can you do for me? If I want to go buy a new car, are you able to tell me the best ways to finance it? Are you able to uh, advise me on tax matters? Are you able to review my insurance policies to make sure that I'm paying the right amount and I have the right amount of insurance? Are you uh, capable, if, if, if I start to become, uh, uh, my health declines, mentally or physically, that uh, you could advise me on end-of-life plan? What do you need in a financial advisor? Another thing, too, experience means everything. You know, in the financial services industry, turnover is huge. Most people who enter the financial services industry don't last very long. It's tough to get started. I, I, I struggled in the beginning. I almost left the business three times when I was young. You don't get a salary for the most part. You work on commission. I can't tell you how many times uh, it was the end of the month and I hadn't done, done enough business to, to pay my bills the next month. And I, a number of times, was looking for a salary job. You know, I had a young family. Thankfully, I got through it and, and built my business from there. But it's, it's a struggle in the beginning. So you want somebody with experience. It doesn't cost you any more money to deal with somebody that's been in the business 10, 20, 30, 40 years. There's no premium for longevity and experience. You know, like, um, you know, a good good law firm, right? You want to get a really good lawyer, cost you an arm and a leg, right? You know, you're going to pay for their experience. That's not true with financial planners. So maybe you want a planner with a little bit of gray in his hair, or in my case, little hair. The bottom line is a good financial advisor is as essential to your financial health as a good physician is to your physical health. To use a financial physician analogy. So if you're looking for an advisor, hire a well-rounded, experienced advisor, preferably a certified financial planner who has good knowledge of estate planning, taxation, insurance, and other areas of financial management. But most importantly, in your gut, you know if that person is BSing you, is selling you, has your best interest at heart, is competent. 
So you want to feel an overall trust and a good comfort level with whatever advisor you select. You want an advisor who you have easy access to that returns your calls. People come to me, new clients that have advisors elsewhere, and they say, oh, I call this guy, you know, he doesn't call me back or, you know, it takes a couple of days for him to get back to me. That's unacceptable. A financial advisor should get back to you, uh, if not that same day, within 24 hours. You want to have an advisor that communicates well with you, that you feel comfortable that you could talk to. And you got to realize a good financial advisor is going to be a very important part of your life. They should care about your family, your future. One of the things we're doing now, you know, because of my um, longevity in the business, uh, my firm, AFM Investments, founded with my partner, Martin Salzman, 35 years ago. Uh, so a lot of our clients have been with us for decades. You know, they retired at 65. Now they're 85, 90. And now we're meeting with their children, discussing generational wealth transfer, long-term care planning. We're doing all that stuff now. I never had it. I rarely had to do it when I was younger in my career because my, my clients were young. But now that, you know, my clients have aged, you know, I've been thrust into this over the years. And we're doing a lot of gifting strategies, estate planning, end-of-life planning, long-term care planning. End-of-life, I mean, that's where people make a lot of mistakes. A lot of wealth can be burned up without the right planning. Well, you're not going to go to an insurance agent and get that kind of uh, advice. So be careful in in, uh, choosing a financial advisor. You know, ask them how they work, how are they compensated, are they a fiduciary, do they work on commissions, do they work on fees, Uh, what kind of access will I have to you, do you have clients that are similar to me, my specialty has always been senior financial issues, my my clients are are mainly retired or pre-retired, that's where our expertise is, the senior financial issues, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, Nursing home planning, income planning. How often will I see a statement? Can I meet with you anytime with no no cost? Will you, um, can I fire you? And if I do, what is the financial aspect? Am I going to have any penalties or commissions if I want to move my money away from you? Could I contact references from you? Now, that's that's kind of like an iffy thing. You know, if someone's going to give you references, they're going to give you the names of people that love them. You know, they're not going to give you the names of people who are going to say bad things about you. But it, but it helps to ask just basic questions. Are you comfortable with that person? You know, tell me about them. you glad you made that decision to go with them. Any problems that have you encountered with that person? Oh, and lastly, definitely look up the disciplinary history of anybody you're doing business with. There are resources that you can go to to look at the exact history of any financial advisor. Broker check is one. And again, most financial people 
are registered representatives. They're licensed to sell securities, whether they're mutual funds, variable annuities, or, or stocks and bonds. Uh, you could just go on broker check, put in their name, and you could find everything about them. Do they have a disciplinary history? Have they had client complaints? Have they had settlements? Is there any criminal history? All that stuff's available to the public if you check it. Very important to do that. So again, finding a financial advisor, not everybody needs one. You got $50,000 to your name and you know, you're just looking to put money in an IRA. You don't need a financial advisor. You don't need a certified financial planner. Chances are they're not going to take you because you're too small. But if you do need comprehensive financial planning, you're approaching retirement, you're going into retirement now, you have a big 401k or you have pension options you have to discuss, that's the time to seek out a good certified financial planner. All right, there you have it. Two hours of the best of the financial physician. Hopefully you learned something, you enjoyed our program today. We will be back next Sunday uh, to talk about money, markets, and politics. Thanks for joining us. Remember the website, the podcast is there at thefinancialphysician.com. Love your emails. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I answer each and every email. You want to make a financial consultation with me? No obligation, no cost. 732-905-8100 is the phone number. Have a wonderful week and join me next Sunday and every Sunday for the next edition of The Financial Physician.